You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 152, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Hi, welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. And today we're going to be talking about the COVID drawdown. I'd like to welcome all of you. If you're watching on YouTube, either live or afterwards, please go ahead and comment and uh, drop a line where you are. It helps with the uh, algorithms. If you're on Facebook, also leave a comment, say hi. I should see your comments come across here in this uh, this new format. So I'm trying to do these live streams somewhat regularly. Um, they are going to be fairly infrequent, though. And so it's been a while since we've done one. And I just want to welcome you to the show. If you're new to the show, uh, make sure you subscribe to it either on YouTube if you're watching, you can hit the subscribe and the notification bell. So if I do another live stream, you're there to witness that as well. And if you're on a podcast player, make sure you subscribe to the show as well. It costs nothing. It's totally free. And that way you don't miss, miss any episodes. They come out weekly and usually on Thursdays, but it kind of depends. And of course, next year, next week's going to be a little different because of Thanksgiving. So we're just going to have a little bit different um, uh, production schedule. Uh, also, I'd like to welcome the new listeners from the We Are Libertarians Network. Uh, very excited to be joining the We Are Libertarians. I was part of the Doctor Podcast Network, which is somewhat folded, and uh, I think it's a natural fit for us to be part of the We Are Libertarians. And really looking forward to spreading these messages of medicine. And so, if you're new to the show, basically what we're going to be talking about today, we're going to be talking about COVID, which is unfortunately a common thing we talk about in the show every uh, every couple of weeks. Uh, but we're also going to be talking about things like healthcare, and specifically the healthcare system, how we better produce better results, uh, the challenges that are faced by physicians, and how they uh, respond to these things. So if you're a patient wondering why you're not getting the care you want in healthcare, we're going to describe the challenges that and the obstacles that are face of physicians that are preventing you from getting what you want. And also, if you're a physician, you know, why can you not do certain things? Why are these obstacles in place? Pharmacy benefit managers, insurance companies, things like this, prior authorizations, these are real problems in medicine, but there are people who are solving these problems, and I think it's real important for us to be encouraged uh, that they're actually being solved. And I know you may not believe it if you're a physician. I know I was very pessimistic when I began the show in 2018. Aside from COVID, uh, things from the healthcare system I think are much better, and there are a lot more opportunities and options for us as physicians. Although other trends may be more concerning to you, 
consolidation, um, you know, loss of autonomy with with employment. There are things that are uh, improved in many ways, and I think you know listening to the show will be very helpful for you. And maybe if you're a business owner, you can find ways to provide better care for your for your employees and better healthcare alternatives. So that being said, I'd recommend you listen to not only we're talking COVID today, but if you're interested in healthcare, why you know insurance companies don't work. Fantastic episode I had David Concorno on on episode 150 two weeks ago, where he really lays out why insurance companies and they aren't lowering costs. In fact, if anything, they're incentivized to raise costs, you know, which seems counterintuitive. But you have to listen to the episode. In fact, I've had people come back to me and say, "Yeah, I had to listen twice because I just didn't quite." There's so much stuff I had to I had to really absorb it all, and I feel the same way. And it's a lot of things we've talked about in the past, but. Again, I think it's very worth your while. But today we're going to talk about COVID drawdown. And I've had a number of people ask me, you know, how does this thing end? How is how is the pandemic, the measures especially, the things that are irritating for us, how do those things end? How do we, you know, get to the other side? And, you know, what is the other side? We've talked about this a number of times in the show uh, as far as, you know, where we'll ultimately get with COVID. But we're going to talk, I think, specifically about, you know, where we are, what we have to do. And then I think, you know, it's going to be predictions time. So... <laughs> Today is November 20th, 2021, so we can maybe revisit this in a year or something and see how wrong I am. But I think we'll begin with talking about the foundations of COVID and the the facts on the ground, so to speak. Um, COVID is endemic or will become endemic, uh, which that means is that this virus will never be eradicated. It will always be with us, barring some sort of futuristic um, elimination program, which we don't, the technology does not exist at this point. So it will be endemic, which means that It'll never be, it'll always be circulating with us. Uh, we know their animal reservoirs. So even if we were to manage to somehow prevent anyone in the world, human being from having COVID, which we know that's virtually impossible since there are a lot of people in the world, <laughs> lots of remote places. But if we somehow eliminate it from human beings, there are animal reservoirs, meaning animals can circulate it and then give it back to humans. And so uh, since that's the case, there's no way that this virus will ever be eradicated. It will be something that we have to live with. And, you know, what living with means, we'll talk about in a little bit, but we need to talk about vaccines as well. The messenger RNA vaccines are revolutionary. They are probably going to earn someone a Nobel Prize. Uh, they are really remarkable. <clears throat> We've not had a, an effective vaccine really against a respiratory virus, common cold, uh, which is essentially a cr coronavirus is like its counterparts, other coronaviruses, rhino, adenovirus. Um, but they also don't work, right? And so I think this is the thing that is really difficult for us to understand because when we look at vaccine effectiveness and what vaccines do, we can look at it and say, well, vaccines prevent you from ever getting sick. And that is true for many vaccines, but some vaccines prevent you from getting a severe disease. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. If you look at the oral polio vaccine, that is a good example of a vaccine that uh, would prevent you from getting the signs of polio, right? Where you get paralyzed, uh, but that you actually could still get it, infect others and still spread that spread it. Now with the other um, polio vaccine, then um, injected form, the IM, uh, you don't actually spread it. It's, so it's sort of like a sterilizing vaccine. So it's not a sterilizing vaccine. And, and in that, it means that you do not prevent yourself from potentially becoming infected. Now, maybe initially your chance of getting infected is very low because you're going to have high levels of antibodies. But when it gets later in, <clears throat> later in time, that antibody protection wanes. <clears throat> and this is something you entirely expect when you come to um, when you come to things like uh, other respiratory viruses like coronaviruses. Vaccines do not in many ways do anything different than your immune system does. So if you get infected with something, you get develop immunity, both long-term and short-term. 
uh, long-term immunity is with B and T cells. And we've talked to Monica Gandhi about that. I'm going to speak to her in a couple of weeks about that as well. Uh, we're going to discuss some more about uh, long-term immunity. But that is where your body sees an, an antigen or um, that it's seen before or pathogen, right? And it will provide provide antibodies and sort of ramp it up. And so you can prevent getting severely sick, but it doesn't prevent the initial infection oftentimes. So you don't have high levels of circulating antibodies all the time. You can't possibly have them for every virus you've ever seen because your blood, if it has all those proteins in there, would be like molasses and you can't survive with that much protein in your blood. And that's normal and that's okay. And that's what we expect. <clears throat> but that also means that especially a respiratory virus that gets into your nose and your um, nasopharynx, that you can't have sterilizing immunity to it very for very long. And so it was unreasonable to expect that this virus, this vaccine would cause sterilized immunity and where you couldn't get infected. <clears throat> so these vaccines, and also seem to be very safe. And so I think that's important to point out. So what are the goals for, for with the, the vaccine and for our approach to COVID uh, to specify SARS-CoV-2 or SARS-Coronavirus-2 is the virus that causes COVID-19 that and so if you get infected and transmit it and don't actually become symptomatic, you technically don't have COVID, but we'll just call COVID as a shorthand. Uh, so the goals, of course, be reducing morbidity and mortality. So it's important to not get really sick uh, and then to you know, get hospitalized and especially to die. And so into any long-term effects from the hospitalization. <clears throat> and also by uh, sort of by extension, we're going to look to decrease hospital utilization. So if you're not in the hospital, obviously you're not, you're not getting quite as sick. You're not going to be using up hospital resources. And it's there, there for all the other usual things that happen, trauma, heart attacks, strokes, uh, cancer diagnosis, all these things that people normally come in for, you know, that's what hospitals are designed for, taking care of these normal things. And they have some capacity for things that are unexpected, like, you know, flu season is usually bad. And so you have, you have some capacity for that. Uh, so the hope is that you have enough, you, you prevent massive amounts of infections and hospitalizations with vaccinations. And that has largely been the case uh, that people who are vaccinated have a lower instance of going to the hospital and being as sick. It of course does not mean hundred percent that it, that they don't get sick, that they don't end up in the hospital. There are people who are frail, who end up being too sick and end up in the hospital anyway. But anyway, that is the general overall, um, goal of the vaccination program. It is not, it has never been, aside, aside from people who were hopeful, uh, but I think spread the wrong message uh, in a way of completely limiting transmission of disease. I think, you know, again, when you initially get vaccinated, your likelihood of in getting infected and transmitting is very low, and that will diminish over time, and sometimes a short period of time. It just sort of depends on your immune response and, um, and I guess how much virus is around you and likelihood of you getting it. So we should not have a goal of eliminating transmission or infections. We should not have a goal of stopping all transmission. And we can have a goal of ending all risk. Obviously, lots of things in life are risky. Uh, living in, itself, in and of itself is risky. Everything you do has an element of risk to it. Infectious disease has been with us forever. It's something we don't really talk about hardly ever. I mean, obviously talk about in the hospital more than other places. But even, you know, in a hospital, we don't we don't dwell on it too much and and that has been a difficult thing for, I think, lay people and even people within medicine really to get a handle on it, the, the element of risk and the amount of risk there is for contracting any sort of infectious disease. Uh, I talked to my wife's pediatrician and we talked about RSV 
And that is a real risk to very small children, babies. Now, most of us get RSV and it's like a kind of nasty cold or whatever. Uh, but for children, it can be life-threatening, especially, you know, very small babies with small airways, right? So uh, <clears throat> it is something that's always been there. It's something we just accept. There are vaccines for RSV, which help, but it is still a risk that exists. Anyway, the point is, is that we cannot end all risk. So our goal can never be to have a risk of zero. There should never be someone making a statement, as I saw on Twitter the other day, of a actually a physician saying, when am I going to feel safe taking a three-year-old into a grocery store? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think probably if you think that, that any element of risk is too much, then you will never feel safe. In fact, it's probably far more dangerous driving to the grocery store with your three-year-old than actually walk in the grocery store because um, the likelihood of a bad outcome of getting COVID, especially for a three-year-old, is probably as close to zero as it can be. And you're probably far greater risk uh, driving the kid around in the car. Now, that being said, it doesn't mean the risk of zero walking in the store getting COVID and something horrible happened to that child, which is you know tragic. But I think you know we have to recognize there's always risk and and accept that and then decide where risk is okay for us. Um, when it comes to the drawdown, I think we need to understand what endemicity means. So when things become endemic, it means that the virus is continually circulating with you. And so that means that, you know, when you're looking at, um, when you're looking at uh, uh, the viruses in a steady state, it is always going to be circulating. But that also means that it's not always circulating everywhere and having epidemic levels. So Essentially, what that means is that we have a certain amount of people who have immunity to the virus who are going to have sterilized immunity, right? Like you have enough antibodies, enough, um, and there's not enough presence of the virus within the local community that you can actually prevent yourself from getting infected, okay? And so you're not someone who can spread it. You're not someone who can be, is a vector, right? But that will wane over time. And there is always a, a, um, a dance between people who are losing immunity and people who are getting infected who are gaining immunity. This happens with every virus all the time that are respiratory viruses. And so there is a steady state that is somehow reached. And at whatever level, a certain amount of people have to have sort of have immunity to prevent large outbreaks. And you will. this is something we experience all the time, right? We notice that something goes through the schools, right? There's this virus that all the kids are catching. Uh, if you're a teacher, you know, you see this all the time, right? And then and then what happens? People get it, and then that there, and then the, that virus, whatever it is, let's say it's adenovirus, it goes away because enough people in the community have had it. Now there's a certain level of travel, there's a certain level of interacting with people who are not from our community, and that's how new viruses get reintroduced in the communities. Uh, there are of course new variants that come in, and so your immunity might not be as good to that specific variant as it was the others. There are a number of viruses that can happen. I mean, we know there are four endemic coronaviruses. SARS-CoV-2 will be the fifth. And so these things are always going to be continually challenging our immune systems and our community. If, if you just look at immune system or population, and there'd be a certain amount of people who are susceptible and a certain amount of people who aren't. And so that's how it's going to sort of come and go. And so that is a steady state. What often happens is that this becomes seasonal. SARS-CoV-2 is at this point shown really no reason to think that it's going to be seasonal. Or I should say, it's not that it is not seasonal now. You see people in this both hemispheres, northern, southern hemisphere, having outbreaks at the same time, which does not suggest that it's something that's like stuck in the winter. I know people want it to be seasonal and insist it is. I think it's mere chance that it seems to be in certain places. Um, I think it's more driven right now by just social interactions and likelihood of meeting people who are 
uh, no in inherent in um, immunity, and that's why we're starting to see what people say. Oh, well, it's because it's seasonal because now it's you know fall and winter. Well, it's probably because our our interactions and the way we're gathering is different. But it will become more seasonal, probably, probably like the other respiratory viruses, uh, as time goes on. Probably next year, but maybe the year after. It's hard to know. Um, so we need at some point learn how to live with SARS-CoV-2 and part of that is accepting the fact that SARS-CoV-2 is something that we're going to all be getting. And that is something that is, um, not been accepted by most people yet. I think, I think there are people, never people who are like cavalier about it and say, well, just bring it on. I'm ready for it. But I think most people are still the mind to tr avoid getting it at any cost. And I think that once they get past that point, that's when we can start having the, the, a real drawdown in the sense that of our measures. Uh, obviously, like I said, you can't stop transmission. It's always going to be happening. We've seen that masks have minimal effect. Uh, I know people will maybe disagree with that, but it's hard to see mask mandates, how effective they are from one location to the next. Uh, the large study in Denmark showed no effect from mask, mask wearing. The study in Bangladesh showed that there's no effect with cloth mask wearing, which is what most people wear when they have a cloth mask, uh, mask mandate. So you could argue with surgical masks. Bangladesh showed some effect on an uh, immunologically naive population that for people over the age of 50, that it showed 11% reduction in transmission. So, I mean, there's that, I guess, but you, the example, the treatment of the effective size of the mask wearing is pretty minimal. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not, it's nearly as impressive as like say the vaccine in preventing transmission. So, I mean, what that means is that people are going to get this many times. You can wear masks the rest of your life, potentially an N95, and maybe you will prevent yourself from getting this and other uh, infectious diseases. But I think that's a rough way to live the rest of your life because it will always be present. You'll never know where it is. You'll never be able to feel 100% safe that it's not in your community. You could wait until you hear that it's in the community, but you could be that first person who gets it and bring it into your community. And so I think ultimately uh, it, that's not a, a, an effective strategy uh, for living. And then uh, this will be like other endemic viruses. We see this all the time where you have you know, flu comes seasonally. Uh, you see other respiratory viruses. We get more colds in the winter because we're inside. In hot locations you know, like Arizona, they might have more colds in the summer because people are more indoors more and gathering indoors. And so I think that's just going to be the, the nature of this virus, but that's sort of what the endemicity looks like. So we have to first politically, psychologically um, accept that, the, that this is going to be an endemic disease. And I feel like we're kind of there as a country. And of course, I'm just speaking about the United States. The world's sort of moving the same sort of circle as we are, but other countries in various spots, but and I can't speak for them. I can only speak for where I live and what I feel, but I feel like this country is coming to the grips that SARS-CoV-2 is not going anywhere. I think the next, the harder thing is accepting what you do about once it's endemic. So we have to accept also, I think that there's not really, there aren't any really effective measures that are, that are not going to be too disruptive in our lives in the future, or we can stop outbreaks. We have to get to the point where we don't accept the fact that it's okay to close schools forever or to shut down businesses or to uh, ban ba gatherings and just accept the fact that this virus is within our community. Uh, I'm in the midst of a terrible outbreak here in West Michigan right now where, I mean, our hospitals are pretty full. I mean, they're about as full as they've ever been I've, in my career. It's to the point where we can't even really have uh, surgeries because we have to recover patients in the operating rooms. I suspect it's going to get worse now with flu coming on. And so I don't, um, I don't mean to, to minimize the effect of, of COVID uh, and all the other stuff that happens, right? It's not just COVID that people are in the hospital with. It's all the other stuff, but it's all the other stuff that usually is there. 
And then you throw COVID on top. And I think soon we'll be throwing the flu on top of that, which may be bad too. But anyway, uh, at some point, this the amount of people who are going to have to go to the hospital for this, I suspect, and you know, don't know this, but that it will diminish over time because there'll be a baseline immunity that people have of, of preventing severe illness, either through an infection in the wild, like a natural infection we call, <laughs> or you have a vaccination. Uh, and then just, to, so we're going to have minimal impact in the transmission and we have to just accept that. And I think we have to come to grips at some point that most of these measures that we did were ineffective. And I think that's going to be a hard one. One, the first, the first step is accepting the fact that vaccines, uh, although they do prevent transmission temporarily, they're not going to prevent transmission forever. And even if you boost someone, you're buying yourself a few months, maybe, but we all know anecdotally, probably, uh, and certainly evidence and you know, statistical evidence shows that it's absolutely to be the case that if you've had the booster, you are still susceptible to getting infected with the virus. I know people who have had this who are careful people, I'd, I'd argue, and yet they've still had it even after the booster. Uh, I've had, I know people who've had this multiple times through, um, through natural infection. So clearly natural immunity is not some amazing thing where you're immune forever either. And I guess, and to Monica Gandhi's point, when I talked to Dr. Gandhi in episode 133, which I'd recommend you go listen to as we talk about the variant and Delta variant at that time in June, um, immunity is, we can do it with two parts. One is the sterilizing, right? Are you going to ever get infected? And the other is long-term, are you going to be severe, get systemic illness and get seriously ill from, from the virus? And that's the important thing, I think, when it comes to, um, to much of this, that I'll say you have immunity, but you don't have immunity in the sense that you're not sterilizing. So that the vaccines are going to prevent you probably from getting severely sick. Uh, the people who are vaccinated and in the hospital tend to be a lot much older and much sicker with other things. And you could argue they get, they would, you know, succumb to these other illnesses. If it weren't for this virus, it might be another virus that does it anyway. The point is um, we have to get to the point where people accept the vaccines do part of that, but they don't prevent transmission. Uh, and yes, they do temporarily, but again, we cannot have everyone vaccinated exactly at the same time because if that was the case, um, well, it'd be impossible logistically to get everyone vaccinated within the same, say, three-week period and get boosted every six months, let's say, within the same three-week period to maintain a level of immunity within our within our country. Uh, it's There's just no way it could be done. Uh, it's hard enough to even get people vaccinated, period, much less to try and coordinate something like that. It, it's It's actually impossible. So if, unless you could do that, you're never going to, you're going to have transmission. And even then you have people who don't get immunity for the vaccine or whatever, and they still have transmission. Um, so when does it happen? I think, you know, we're already starting to see signs that we're accepting that it's endemic. We're accepting, I think people are coming more along the lines that the measures don't work, but that's not quite real. It's probably people more accepting that the vaccines don't work as hoped uh, in the sense that they stop all transmission. But people in, um, in many places are, you know, they're, they've come to terms and they have to accept that there are political mistakes made. Um, I think we need to not blame people for the things they did in some ways. I think some people in the face of evidence, they still did the, th the wrong thing. Um, but you're going to start seeing more and more countries and places drop these mandates and they're going to react by doing mandates because they think there's nothing else they can do. And they're going to have mandates for vaccines or vaccine passports. But you can see logically, this doesn't make any sense because you still can transmit with the vaccine, even if you're vaccinated. Um, 
you can still get infected, right? So it may, it will slow and slow it. But even if you got to 95% vaccination, I don't think there's anyone who reasonably thinks that you're going to stop this, um, stop the, the pandemic and the, tra and the transmission of the virus. I think this is going to take till next year. And by 22, I mean, we're almost next year at this point, but definitely within 2022, people are going to just recognize that these mandates are not, not possible. And looking at our country, we have a federalized system. So states do their own things. The federal government does its own things. It's going to be increasingly difficult for the federal government to do any sort of national mandates. Um, there'll be leaders who claim uh, victory. They're going to see the death rate goes down. They're going to say, Hey, see what we did. It, it, it saved lives. It was the right thing to do. And, um, and I, I don't know, maybe you just have to let them believe that in order to save face, because I think in many ways for people to adopt a new way of thinking, they have to come to the thing, the, the, they have to come to the understanding that they came to that on their own <laughs> and that it actually is a natural extension of what they re previously thought. Right. So we could say, well, all the evidence points to the fact that masks really didn't do much, do much. Uh, but maybe now you could, they could somehow come to the realization that, well, was, we masked early, a lot of opportunity to get to the vaccine and that's what saved a bunch of lives. And maybe there's some truth to that, but I don't think there's a whole lot, but anyway, I think people need to sort of come to their, come to things, you know, as they, as they, um, as they can. I think, you know, when in the United States, we see the midterm elections come 2020, I think you already saw a precursor to that here in no, in November in Virginia and New Jersey and so elsewhere. I, I think the COVID restrictions are going to cause people, politicians to think twice about encouraging the health officials to do certain things because health officials are entirely um, responsive to the political leaders. If they don't have any political backing for their measures, they may be outside the political arena, like, you know, for instance, our county, our county health director can do what they want. And there's nothing the county commission, the political leaders in the county can do. But it's only because this public health official has a cover, the political cover from our governor, let's say, and the state health department and other counties that are doing the same thing for various um, measures. And so because of that, they have political cover. I believe they'll be losing that political cover uh, over the next time. And you're already starting to see states that are not um, and for lack of a better term, blue, right? States that are purple or red uh, are already sort of ignoring lots of these recommendations for masking and mandates, and they're they're pushing back. But even the purple states, and I'll use my state as an example, Michigan, where we're kind of eh, relatively evenly split, uh, our state, uh, you're seeing that the rules are not really being enacted. We're not really having a lot of new things being put in place. We're in the midst of our worst outbreak absolutely by far in since this pandemic began. And yet we are not seeing really any measures put forth by the, by the state uh, because there's just not a political will to do it. The, the people, the populace really is not supportive of it. And I feel like when I walk around and when I'm interacting with people, it is not as if the pandemic is not going on, but it's sort of like people are not really changing their behavior a whole lot, which I think is, contributes to the fact that this it's gotten so bad right now, just because people are, re-engaging socially as they did before. And so the amount of the likelihood of you're someone who doesn't have pre-existing immunity of, of not getting, avoiding this is lower. And so you're more likely to get it right now. You're also seeing law, lawsuits. Uh, you already saw OSHA uh, back down from its national mandate. And I think there'll be more lawsuits against things. I do think though, if you're in healthcare, and this is a bad news, uh, that there'll be the mask mandate in order to, that you have to wear masks all the time, that you have to have vaccine mandates. 
um, that that will persist for some time. And I think well through next year, as long as the senators accept money from the government, they are beholden to the government's rules and regulations that it sets forth, which are going to be a reflection of what the it, the current administration believes to, in large part. Uh, you know, I I think the the notion that the our our executive agencies are independent of the executive branch that uh, I think is maybe you wish it was the case that they were sort of, they didn't, they weren't influenced, but they are absolutely influenced by the executive branch. And if the executive branch were to pull support or say, we can't do something, I think there's no question that they would not push so hard. But uh, I think right now with this administration, they are pushing still very hard. And so I suspect that they're going to at least maintain it within the hospital settings, despite the fact that I think there's limited efficacy and the evidence that these, these measures make any difference. I think if you, wearing a mask, walking around the hospital. I cannot see how at this point you really truly believe that makes much of a difference, but that's just my opinion. Um, so then, then of course the bigger question is schools. And so what's going to happen with schools? I, I think again, all these things I mentioned before, I think you're going to see school measures. Uh, they're going to get a little crazy here as the flu hits the country. And I think it's going to be a bad flu year. Uh, but by next year, most schools will be back totally back to normal. I think it's you're unlikely to have mask mandates at that point. Everyone will have been vaccinated who could have been vaccinated, who wants to be vaccinated, I should say. Uh, I think there'll be some battle between some school districts and it depends on where you are, how heavily the influence the unions are. And um, I guess for lack of a better term, how liberal the, the electorate is in whether they mandate vaccinations. But I think you're gonna start seeing some real, real challenges with vaccine requirements for education because that's going to affect the, the poor the most and, and people who had, you know, people of color are going to, are the ones who are, have the lowest vaccine uptake anyway. And so you're going to really disadvantage kids who are already disadvantaged. And it's going to be a, it'll be a challenging conundrum for, for the leaders in those areas to really just abandon. I mean, in some ways abandoning these kids. Right. Uh, so I think it, it will, I don't doubt that there'll be vaccine mandates, but once we come to grips with what the vaccine does and doesn't do, and namely it doesn't, prevent transmission uh, significantly. It, I think your your argument for doing forcing kids to get vaccinated, uh, you know, is going to be a really challenging argument to make. And so I think that'll probably come to an end, except in you know, a few districts. And that'll be sort of the challenge. I think, you know, when it comes to universities, you're going to see universities right now are kind of bizarre because many universities are you know, masking all the time. Uh, everyone has is maximally vaccinated and they're 20, 21 years old. Um, I worry that, of course, if you have any sort of problems and reactions to the vaccine, which we haven't really seen a ton yet, we've seen some with myocarditis, especially with young males, um, that a lot of this could blow up. Um, but I think universities will go largely back to normal next year. That'd be, that'd be my expectation. But again, so these are the wild, wild predictions, right? But I think that we will have accepted the endemicity of the virus. We'll have accepted the fact that vaccines can't do everything. And I would hope by then, and this is that we're, that all the measures of vaccine passports and those mandates would largely have fallen by the wayside because we'll see that they don't do everything we'd hope they do. I mean, if we thought we were really truly stopping people from getting infected, uh, we would, it'd be easier sell for the vaccine mandates, but they're not going to perform what they want. And if it just comes down to forcing people to get vaccinated so to keep our hospitals free, well, you know, pretty much everyone's going to be vaccinated who wants to be at that point. There are a number of elderly who can't 
mean, unless you arrest them, there's nothing you do to, to uh, force them to get vaccinated. Uh, I know, I know people like that. <laughs> I know people who like sick, you know, wear six masks. And so, um, but it, those people, you know, they don't have a job. So it's not like you can force them by even a job mandate. And those are people you really care about the most, I suppose, in some ways. But I think, you know, um, ultimately most people, they have to, again, come to terms on their own. They have to, their cognitive, um, uh, their biases, the biases are cognitive biases. And I have my own, you know, I tend to move that I look at measures that are toward greater liberty, freedom, autonomy. Those are important values to me. I rank those higher than other values. And, you know, everyone has their, their values where they rank them differently. That's obviously where mine are. Um, but for most people, a high value they have is that they weren't wrong. Anyone who's been married or had any sort of relationship with another person, uh, they accept the fact that, you know, I've always got to be right. And whatever I did was right. Maybe I was wrong in some way, but I was right. Ultimately, at least my limited information I had, I was right. And so those people who are imposing mandates, uh, restrictions, lockdowns, they have to they have to come to terms with that maybe what they did was the right thing with the information they had, uh, that they saved a bunch of lives and we've learned since then it's not as useful or maybe it used to be useful and no longer, it's no longer useful. These political, and basically these are political leaders, these are public health officials, they have to, they will have to declare victory uh, and they can claim any sort of counterfactual they want and there's no way to, to deny that saying, you know, less people died less people in the hospital. It was bad, but it could have been worse. Uh, these things we can't, you know, you, there's no counterfactual again, right? So they have to, they're going to have to claim victory. And I, you know, I look at my own governor who had, I think, silly restrictions, like you can get a boat that has a, mo that doesn't have a motor, but you can't get a boat with a motor. I mean, these sort of ridiculous uh, restrictions initially in the, the panic, which clearly make no difference. I mean, anyone thinks it did, I, I don't know how you can come to terms with that. Uh, but, you know, she'll say, well, it saved lives. It kept people from moving around as much. And maybe she's right. I don't know. But uh, they have to declare the victories in order for us to move on. Until people are, uh, and when I people, I mean, until leaders are unwilling to double down. So when some something goes wrong, like, for instance, let's say you've, uh, you've decided that the mass mandates really work. And anytime there's a little bit bump in infection rate, you're going to start imposing the mass mandates. You have to get beyond the point where you just accept the fact that this is endemic. And so that is largely, um, when it comes to political leaders and the elite, uh, they are going to be resistant to this because it, because they have to, you know, they're going to keep doubling down until people just refuse to do them. And I think you're seeing that in red states in the United States. You're seeing a number of countries. Uh, I don't think you're seeing a majority of people who feel that way. But you're seeing more and more people who see the disruption in their lives, and they're going to start questioning why they're doing it. And we are not there yet, uh, but I think we're getting closer. And I think by next, certainly by next spring, by next summer, we're going to sort of have most people in this country will probably have had been infected. And so I think the the demand in the hospital systems is going to be diminished, and the amount of people getting severely sick from this. Most people have been vaccinated or again have natural infections. So I think our the state where we are and moving towards endemicity is going to be very good. And I think there'll be less problems in general uh, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to SARS-CoV-2. So I think the drawdown is going to take a little while and unfortunately. And so I know I've had a number of people ask me, you know, when is it happening? And I think 
when it comes to schools, I think this school year is kind of a bust. <laughs> You're still going to have people who are going to insist <laughs> on, um, they're going to insist on these measures for a while and in certain places more than others. But I think the, that again, again, I think next year is where things are going to start really turning around. I do stand by my declaration in June of this year that the, that we can declare independence from this virus and not in the sense that we're not going to get sick. I never said that. <clears throat> Excuse me. I did say, however, that you are going to, everyone who wants protection will have had it. Who's going to be severely sick? Yes. Kids at that time couldn't, but now certainly just everyone, but very small children which is almost the entire population, can get vaccinated if they want. And there's, there's no reason that this needs to, that these measures need to continue because vaccination in this case, in this instance, primarily protects you. And if you don't feel like you need the protection, okay, whatever. But there's no reason to think that we need to vaccinate everyone in order to protect other people. You might argue, and I know people will make this argument, that, well, you're seeing right now why we need to vaccinate everyone because our hospitals are totally full. We can't take care of normal stuff. Uh, and that is entirely true. There are normal procedures, elective procedures, semi-elective procedures, imaging, people get sick, whatever, that we are having a real tr struggle to take care of them in a normal, normal manner within the hospitals. That is absolutely true. But this is also very temporary. Now, again, I, I recognize that people are going to be upset about that because they're going to say, well, sure, it's temporary to you because you're not using it right now. But if, I'm, if you know, I had my gallbladder and I had this real problem right now, I need to get fixed now. I don't. The fact that it's going to be better in six months doesn't do me any good. That is true. And that's absolutely, I don't deny that. And it's, you know, unfortunate. I guess I don't know what else to say. Except to say that there's nothing more you can do about it. We can, if you try and enforce these mandate things, you're only going to get pushback. I don't know that the amount of people you're going to get added on to vaccination rolls is going to be that much higher. Um, you know, sticks work, but they come at a severe cost. And I think the it's much better using carrots and just laying out the facts. And so I think it is true that hospitals are more clogged right now because people did not get vaccinated. It is also true that they will not be clogging the hospitals in the future. And if you... Somehow, if you thought all these measures were effective, you merely string out the amount of time it takes before we hit endemic status with this virus. And also, food for thought, which is not part of the drawdown, there are there are costs to all these measures and these things that we have not anticipated and things that you know I didn't think about before. But just as SARS-CoV-2 will become an endemic disease that will come through our, through our population at various times, um, you know, probably seasonal. We'll see. Uh, it'll sweep through our communities. All these other viruses at this, you know, do the same thing, right? We have RSV hits the community and you have a rhinovirus, you know, comes through and then a parainfluenza virus and then hand, foot and mouth disease and whatever. Most of these diseases require human interaction, right? You have to be, you have to see someone and be around them and to get infected and whether maybe they know they're sick, maybe they don't, whatever. But that's how these these viruses move around, right? And then they move from community to community as people travel out of the country to between states, different cities or whatever. And so we have this sort of steady state of immunity to all these different viruses all the time. Well, some will argue that masks, mask wearing was what prevented all these spreading. I don't tend to think that's the case. I think is the fact that really last year, 
we limited our interaction with each other. We went to sports sporting events less and concerts and out to dinner to our holidays with our family, whatever the amount of interactions you had socially and the fact that you were not like around as many people or as close to people really changed the dynamic of our, of our steady state with these viruses. So what does that mean? I mean, I think you look at it and say, well, there's always a certain amount of people who have immunity to some virus and there's always a certain amount of the virus circulating through the community. <clears throat> well, the virus is still probably circulating but with less interaction, uh, there are less people getting sick. The immu overall immunity level of our population, you know, which is at various stages all, all the time, it sort of undulates. So one person's like maximally uh, immune and one's maximally unimmune, like they have no immunity. Um, the amount of people who are maximally immune went down because there weren't people who were getting reinfected with these things. And so what you saw is, or seeing, I should say, is you're seeing sort of a reemergence of all these things that are endemic kind of all hitting at once because we are re-entering regular interactions with each other. And so one of the costs of limiting all that stuff is we sort of messed up the steady state balance that we had with infectious diseases. Things, you know, we just never really think about the fact that your, your community has a certain level of uh, immunity to rhinovirus, right? Or the certain level, a uh, certain strain of rhinovirus. And so you now uh, have lower immunity in general. So more people are susceptible. It's more likely to have a mini epidemic uh, in a community of all these different things. And we've seen like a terrible RSV season in a weird time of the year. Like for us in the North, we never see RSV in the summer, but we did because I think people just started going out and seeing people. And so the rhinovirus took off. Uh, and, and that's the, that's the other cost to us changing our basic um, interactions and sort of level of seeing other people. Once they gets back to totally normal, we'll have to, we'll meet a steady state. And so we're not there yet. I think we're still, people are, are not seeing people as much. They're not interacting. They're not doing certain things, not going to concerts or whatever. And so because of that, we still have, we're still a ways off from reaching a steady state of endemicity uh, with this virus or actually the others. And so I think you're going to start seeing people get really sick for the next year or two or three, maybe as you, all these viruses that sort of you've been dodging, because you talk to people like, hey, yeah, I've I've been I've been hard to had a cold in like two years. Well, it's because you just weren't around people and more people weren't around other people. And so the likelihood of a virus ripping through the community is a lot less. And that's you could argue it's because of masks, maybe, but I think it's probably more just the fact that we're just not we weren't doing what we normally do, and people weren't traveling as much, and the likelihood of things moving from other communities into our community, all those things changed from what the previous steady state of activity, human interaction was. And so once we see that get back to totally normal whatever that is, uh, that's when we'll get re get this endemicity and we'll reach that steady state with SARS-CoV-2. Finally, uh, with SARS-CoV-2 specifically, I think, you know, what how bad it will be is hard to say. And I think, you know, our expectation when I talked to Dr. David Graham in episode, I don't know, like 80 or something, when we first talked about this back in April of 2020, our expectation is that once you've gotten SARS-CoV-2, or been vaccinated, you have a long-term immunity and the likelihood of you getting severely sick from this is diminished. Uh, and so the likelihood of you not unclogging up the hospital, but just actually getting really, really sick from this is a lot less. That doesn't mean again, you will keep continue getting infect infected, but since you're not getting severely sick, you'll, you'll still getting SARS-CoV-2 again and again, but it will be a, our expectation is you'll get a cold. And the more times you're exposed to this and get infected and 
and develop a better immune response uh, for long term with the T or T cells and B cells, that it will be more like a cold every time. Is that actually the case? Well, we don't know because not a time has passed. Uh, will this mutate into something worse, more virulent, and uh, cause more problems? Maybe. I tend not to think so, but I do think it's a really nasty cold, and and it's not like the other coronavirus. It's much more severe. Uh, there's, I don't think there's any denying that. Uh, my hope is it's just that we don't have it where we're always going to be at risk for this virus, even for small children, because there aren't many coronaviruses that I'm aware of that, or any of the sort of common respiratory viruses that cause kids to... I mean, end up in the hospital. And SARS-CoV-2, although it's extremely rare for kids to end up in the hospital, it does happen. And so it's very strange. And and, it, and I don't know if that's something to do with maternal uh, transfer of antibodies maybe would help. I, I don't know. And, and I don't know that anybody knows at this point. We haven't really studied that sort of thing. But I think those are important things to, to consider. But the fact that my guess is this will be something you get again again. And at some point, we'll stop testing. some point, we'll stop caring that you have SARS-CoV-2 or because we never cared about rhinoviruses. We never cared. We cared about the flu because there's, you know, Tamiflu and there's medication for SARS-CoV-2. And so maybe at some point people will start taking that to, to minimize their uh, symptoms. I don't think it's a game changer as much as they say it is, but we'll see that at, we'll see as uh, time bears out, but it'll probably be like Tamiflu where it's going to decrease your day a day or two, maybe of symptoms, but we'll see. I could be wrong about that. So anyway, uh, if you, I'd encourage you to share this with your friends and family, people who are, interested in sort of the evolution where we're the drawdown. Hopefully this is encouraging that I think we're getting close to that point where we're going to have to draw down, but um, I'll make sure you subscribe to the show on, on the, your podcast player choice. Make sure you subscribe and hit the notification on YouTube, go to Facebook and you can go to the paradox Facebook page and you can like it so that you can get notified when this show comes up. Anyway, hopefully you have a great day and great Thanksgiving. Um, Please don't be discouraged, but also uh, don't live too much in fear. I think that's probably the, if there's any takeaway from all the things I do, I hope that fear is not something that's driving you um, because it's, it's a state of, it's a state of being that is really sad. And it's one that I think uh, we, it will it'd be tiring and it causes all kinds of problems when it comes to how we are with each, with other people and um, how we are with our family. So I, I would hope that you would um, be comfortable with this increased risk of a virus, but recognize the risk if you've had infection or whatever, or if you've been vaccinated, that it's that it's going to be a lot less and it's not something probably to worry about as much, although it's obviously inconvenient. But anyway, uh, we'll be talking about this more. Again, I'm going to talk to Dr. Monica Gandhi in a couple of weeks. We're going to talk about long-term immunity. Next week, we're going to be talking about regular healthcare and solutions to healthcare problems with the delivery system. And so I highly recommend you check that out because it's going to be for people, especially as we enter open enrollment, there's a great time to start talking about alternatives for people who are small businesses um, looking to cover their employees or for people who are looking to go into the market and try to find insurance options. So again, thanks a lot. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. 